Hello everyone, and welcome back to episode 71 of the Retro Rents. Uh, this is our second half and conclusion episode for our amazing, amazing interview with the incredible Neil Halford. Um, I, I mean, what is what? What do you say? Um, we've gotten so much feedback and just so much. Uh, so many messages of people that just really enjoyed the interview and it really makes me happy uh, considering how much fun we had recording it and how much fun we just we had with Neil um, it, it's it's something I will not forget like this was just such a privilege uh, in this episode we get to the Crondor years and it's an amazing story of how that came about um, nobody will tell it better than Neil, so I won't even get into spoilers here. And then we also take uh, a step into his career in making movies as a director. And um, highly recommend you check out the one we talk about in this, which is The Case of Evil. It's on Prime, it's fantastic, and I'll have links to it in the show notes. Um, other than that, let's get to our interview with the amazing Neil Halford. Thank you again, Neil. This was such a great time. Just, just to, to, you know, obviously we can edit some posts. I'm more than happy to keep going, Neil. I just, if you haven't eaten yet or anything, I just, I, I could, I'm more than happy Whatever. to keep going. Well, well again, I, you know, there, there is something I tell people is if you drop a nickel in me, you get $5 worth. And so, <laughs> uh, so it's just a matter of whenever you're ready for me to stop talking, I will stop talking. Uh, I'm fine for the moment, but if you guys need to break. I was going to say, you may not, you may not like, uh, you may not like the result of that because this is. I'm having so much fun. Um, yeah, this is great. Uh, yeah, so I I'm ha definitely want to keep going because now we're getting into the – and, like, again, just the rich history of, you know, what you told us already. It's so amazing when you look back, you know, as, as somebody who played these games, I, I've, I've always been a very big fan – of behind the scenes um what on dvds or or you know learning how something was created and and you know it, even as a kid I, I would just like imagine what it would be like to be in in those offices and and the the environment and you know as i got older and started working at like what would probably be considered a startup at the time like it started to like feel like oh this must have been what it was like but you had said something really interesting and I think we've heard this now from several people we talked to. One that really sticks in my head, uh, we, we interviewed Christy Marks. Mm. And we were talking to her about uh, Conquest and Longbow. And she said the same thing, that there was no there was no game design Bible back then. You just yeah. you just did it. And, um, yeah, it's just wild. So now, okay, so now you're in the Pacific Northwest. And you're getting hooked up with uh, Mr. Feist's uh, Rift War Saga. Had yeah. you had you heard of it at this point? Had you read it? So so uh, I'll, I'll I'll walk this back just a little bit and kind yeah, of tell please. you about part of the origins of all this other stuff. And so before I got to Dynamics, how this all got started was Jeff Tennell, who was the uh, the head of Dynamics at the time, mm -hmm. uh, had read the novel Silverthorn by Raymond E. Feist, which is the uh, third. Uh, 
Well, well, it's third, well, third, okay. third or fourth, depending on whether magician is split in half or not. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, and so, um, or actually, is this? Well, it's, yeah. So uh, it would. Yeah, it would be this. It would be the second if magician wasn't split. If if magician is because magician was originally written as one novel, then later on the publishing house split it in, into apprentice and master. Yep. Um, and then Silverthorne's the third one, and then the the. The, the third book or the fourth book is uh, uh, Darkness, Darkness Assassin. Yeah. So Jeff Janelle had read Silverthorn. He really liked the story, and he said, I think this would make a really fantastic computer game. Mm -hmm. So he talked to Ray Feist um, and said, I'd really like to, to, uh, to hire you to adapt this game as a book. And Ray's uh, response to that was, is, you don't want to hire me because you can't afford me. Uh, uh, and, and Ray Ray is very plain spoken. Uh, yes. And also the thing is, is Ray Ray comes from a family. His father worked in film, and he comes basically from a family that worked had written screenplayers, whatever. He is a very 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 canny businessman, and that yeah. is Ray first, last, and always. Uh, and so. Uh, um, so he's very good at, of course, he was also, uh, the president of the science fiction writers of America for a while. And so when it comes oh, down wow, to yeah. negotiating contracts and all that other stuff, uh, <laughs> Ray knew this stuff inside and out. And so he was just basically, pr he was pretty blunt with him. He says that you do not want to hire me because you can't afford me, uh, afford that. What you want to do is license my universe and develop a, a game in that universe and then hire somebody else to, to come in and do the story for you. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, so, but he had, uh, so they, they decided they would get the, the license to, to the universe and they were going to develop Silverthorn as a interactive version of Silverthorn. <clears throat> and so this is where things stood whenever John got a hold of me. And he, he brought me up to have a conversation with uh, uh, an interview with he and Jeff. And I could tell you that story, but it's a really long story by itself. It's just, it just, just suffice to say it was one of the craziest interviews I've ever had in my life that it involved running through an airport while doing the interview. Uh, <laughs> and they, uh, this, you can actually read that story on Neil's blog uh, yes. in the uh, Crondor Confidential. It is a fantastic story. Uh, uh, um, <laughs> But uh, but anyway, uh, so we had the conversation, and I said, my personal take on it is, is I think it would be a gigantic mistake to adapt a book as a computer game. Because yeah. if the idea is is to attract the audience, you know, if the whole value of getting a license is getting a hold of the same audience that reads the books or watches the movie or, you know, fill in the blank. And personally, as uh, uh, from my own standpoint is, I wouldn't want to go out and play a game of a book or a movie that I already know how it's going to end. Yep. Uh, uh, or that I know what's going to happen. So it, it, to me, uh, that doesn't really hold a lot of, of interest for me. I said, what you want to do is create a brand new, um, a brand new story set in this universe uh, so that the people who are coming to it are really excited is their characters and their places and, and other things that they recognize. Those are things that hook them into it, but you give them an entirely new narrative. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I was really thankful that Jeff was not really uh, that hard to convince. Uh, 
Um, and so he said, okay, well, if this is what you want to do, then, then we'll do that. And so John and I went off and locked ourselves into an office uh, for about a week uh, in Eugene. And we, we laid out what was, would become the, the main overarching storyline for the game. And we and we, we put it together, and the and the decision we made was is that uh, between Darkness Sethanon and his latest book, which at the time was Princes of the Blood, mm -hmm. there was a twenty year gap, and we said let's write a new story that takes place exactly in between those two books. Um, and so uh, so that way we've got a little bit of time has kind of passed by. Uh, and also, I wanted to do something because Ray had done something really mean and killed off Locklear in a really awful way. <laughs> yeah. And and I said, and let's let's uh, adapt this now. At the time that I, they brought me aboard, I didn't really know uh, Feist Universe. Uh, I had I had seen his name. I mean, he's one of those people you would see on bookshelves. And so there's yeah. David Eddings and there's Ray Feist and and all of the, the big fantasy authors that were writing at the time or whatever. And so he's one of these big names out there, but I didn't, wasn't really familiar with him other than I'd seen him on bookshelves, except for the fact that I had not realized it, but whenever I was first book, uh, <laughs> I did not realize, first of all, it had this, this awful Aaron or something on the cover. Yes. Terrible. Anyway, this this was the expectation of I'm a young I'm a you know young kid and I want my hero to sound like a freaking hero. Uh, it's sort of like, but you know, for me, it's the same thing of you know when you reach Once and Future King and we're calling King Arthur yeah. Wart. Yep. Uh, but um, anyway, um, so uh, but I decided at this point is that we have these books we have that that we're doing, uh, and we need to. Um, I came from a background of, again of being a fan. You know, mm -hmm. again, I I was a hardcore Star Trek fan, and even though I didn't know Ray's universe, I, and I, I wasn't starting off as a hardcore fan of his universe, I said, "This is not about me and and what I care about. What this is right. about is I'm I'm being handed the keys to this guy's universe. He has a large international fan base." It is my job to become someone who knows this story or this universe inside and out and to defend it to the death. Yep. Um, and so, uh, so I read, uh, I, I read the entire, all, all the books that he had available at the time. So that was everything from Magician all the way up through Princes of the Blood. Uh, and then um, we started the whole process of, kind of, of so, that we had the overall storyline, which basically just was sort of like where we were going to start and end sort of each of the chapters in terms of the, the larger kind of uh, tent poles for everything. So we knew, you know, a certain person is destined to die. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, so all of the, the big picture kind of things were, that were, were mapped out at that point. Uh, but my job was then to go in, read all the books and, uh, and so I'm just going through, and anytime I found some fiddling little detail, I'm writing it down in a notebook. So it says, you know, this is what this character looks like. This is where this is. Uh, this character had this tragic thing that happened, or here's here's something where this character is hinting at something that's never explained in the books, and maybe we can dive into that. Um, and so I, every place where there was either a a set 
you know, kind of canon that was there for me to work from, uh, I had those as notes. Or if uh, if there was something where, well, where did this come from, or why is this the way it was, then I'm I'm trying to figure. I'm going to try to fill in that backstory. Okay. Because the the way the the way that that Ray has things set up, um, you know, he's only he's writing novels, and you're only in, in his book for a few hours. Yeah. And, you uh, and question when you're in a computer game, you can go anywhere and you can do anything, which means that that there's a lot of stuff that that's just sort of you know very sketchily explained in some places. You go well, it can't be sketchily explained because we're going to walk you around in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're going to be picking this stuff up and doing things, and so I need I need to know what's there and definitively. So, um, and so a lot of it was just sort of going in and just peeling back, you know, layers and layers of stuff and figuring out. Uh, you know, characters and stories and other things that are going on. You know, one of the big things that's left at the end of of Darkness at Sethanon was okay. So there's this big thing, and it's just sitting down there. There were thousands of people who were involved in that battle, and nobody knows anything about it. You know, <laughs> so you know, is this really safe? You know, is it how you know how does the kingdom deal with the fact that this is here? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so that was was like probably the big question at the, uh, at the beginning, at the outset of all this is like I've got us to, to. He kind of leaves this thread dangling at the end of, of Darkness of Ethanon, and I said so I have to explain that I've got to yeah. I've got to I've got to deal with this because he he leaves this thing that that in my mind there's an atomic bomb. I was say there is a giant <laughs> bomb just under <laughs> the city. Um, you know that that could kill every extinguish all life as we know it, and so uh, it's sort of important that maybe we figure out how you know uh, is this being protected? How's the kingdom dealing with it? So so we kind of work back from that notion. Um, and, uh, uh, and so everything from there was just sort of, and, and usually speaking, whenever I'm working on a concept, I always try to figure out where we're going to end and we work backwards from there. Yeah, that's interesting. And so, so, well, you know, it's sort of like a murder mystery. Well, here's the body, here's who done it. Well, okay, let's go backwards and figure out, well, who, what had to happen before that? And what had to happen before that? And so it's, it's everything. I I tend to treat uh, interactive stories in particular, like they're murder mysteries. Here's the end state. What are the things that have to happen before you get there? And then back up from that, and then you back up from that, and you back up from that, and then then you have to go back and you like create connect- connective tissues. Well, in order for that to be true, then you have to explain this, uh, and you know, so. Um, I mean, the the advantage of having worked on Cronder was is I didn't have to create the entire universe. Yeah, you know, that I, must I, have I, been a really cool like you know cool thing to have in the pocket really yeah well i mean you know there's there's all of all of the stuff about you know the the uh all the old dragon lords and and all that stuff that's there and there's a lot of stuff that's sort of sketched at and hazily kind of mentioned and so you have an opportunity to step in and you know play with it now yeah as as we went along uh you know uh of course it's one of those things that people say, well, it's this great story that's written by Ray Fisco. Ray helped create the universe. Of course, Ray, Ray yeah. didn't even create the universe by himself. It, no, was, it was his uh, D&D his, uh, Thursday his Nighters. Mid, yeah, yes, his, his Midkemia Press buddies, yep. John Everson and, and those folks who, uh, who basically created the universe. And Ray eventually said, I want to write a book that's set out here in this little duchy called Crydee. Can I do that? I said, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, uh, and his <laughs> books. His book is set like a thousand years before the events in the role playing sessions they had. 
Oh wow! Um, um, and so, so there's actually this whole little group of people that were involved with the mythology of that universe. And so, um, when it actually came to the, the story of the game itself, Ray was my only person that I had to answer to. But mm. I occasionally had questions about how does magic work, how does blah 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 work. And so if Ray didn't have an answer to it, then sometimes it would get kicked off to the council and then they would chew on it and I would get another answer back. Oh, wow. Um, and so uh, the one thing that I was really fortunate with, and this has honestly been uh, the great thing that, about working with Ray, that I honestly, I never had the same situation ever afterwards working with a licensed property right. uh, was that I pretty much had an open door with Ray. Uh, That's awesome. You know, in, in terms of if I had a question, you know, sometimes he was just busy. And so sure. I might send him an, an email and say, what about X, Y, or Z? And I might not hear a, a response back from him immediately, but usually I'd get back an answer. A lot of time, which was, Neil, you're an idiot. What the hell are you thinking? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and so, um, but there wasn't a whole lot of that simply because... Uh, you know, some things were a case of we're develop, you know, we're developing stuff as we go along, and we didn't have a chance to always kind of check everything. And, and Ray's most important thing was he just wanted to make sure that the big things were there. Did yeah. did Jimmy the Hand sound like Jimmy the Hand? Did you know? Uh, did I not break various other you know things that he's trying to do in future novels or right. you know? Uh, and so for the most part, he was fairly hands off, but like I say, occasionally I'd ask for a piece of advice and some, sometimes he, he would tell me, you know, about something that was going on that I didn't really have anything other, any, any other information that would fill in those gaps. Um, and, or like I say, occasionally he just said, no, you can't do that. Um, but for the most part, you know, 90% of the time, uh, most of the time it was John and I doing stuff and primarily just me. Right. Uh, uh, writing the story uh, and coming up with what events were going to happen in, uh, in in stuff. John was primarily he was the producer. He was the one that was making sure that we were doing uh, uh, everything that needed to happen. He was also he was also the person that technically had the lead design title. I, okay. I didn't have I didn't have enough ex I didn't have enough. Uh, experience that I could have been called a lead designer at the time. Sure. You know? uh, but that said is uh, I did a lot of day-to-day -day stuff, you know, for the team. You know, in yeah. terms of, of being they go to me and say, well, are we going to do this? You know, uh, but but my my sort of uh, Bailey was primarily about the events in the game, the storyline uh, and uh, to a lesser degree sort of what was going on with with how should things look. How should uh -huh. things, you know, uh, and that kind of stuff. And John was all the hardcore mechanics. And honestly, John is a far better mechanics designer than I ever was and ever would be, uh, because he just lived, eat, ate, and drank that stuff. He's the per kind of person that's that that is constantly playing card games or or other kinds of games. He understands all the mechanics. Uh, he eats, lives, and breathes that stuff. Um, wow. And the the great stuff about working with him again is that he and I complemented each other where the other person wasn't necessarily as strong. Well, you know, he had a good sense of story, but uh, uh, again, he always let me drive that bus. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but there sometimes I would have questions or or things I'd say, "What do you think about X, Y, or Z?" And John would throw in stuff. Um, there are a lot of the house messages where you would go up and you would you know knock on the house and and you go in and you need a uh, it would be where the little text message would pop up. Yep. Um, John wrote messages for several of those in some of the zones. Um, um, but um, John, 
uh, people give me credit for this all the time, but it was really John is uh, the puzzle boxes. Oh, um, really? John, John created the mechanics for the puzzle boxes and probably most of the riddles. I, I did a small handful of them, but, but I mean, most of those were John. So iconic, um, too. Uh, oh, it is. It is. And, and whenever people talk about uh, Crondor, that is one of the first things people talk about are the puzzle boxes. Oh, it's um, one of my favorite parts. And so, uh, 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 but uh, anyway, we had, uh, I just felt really, uh, really privileged to work with John on, on the design and work on, the, you know, and so uh, I did. I created the system for how resistances and things worked on weapons. And so, you know, this works better against this and, and this mm -hmm. works better against that. And, you know, he messed with the numbers, but I, I'm the one that basically kind of decided this, this will be effective against this and, and that kind of stuff. So, and we didn't have, we always described our game as an adventure game with an RPG element, even though uh, people consider it an RPG, but I, uh, you know, it's not like we had this really elaborate, uh you know uh, kind of stats system um not like a lot of other games that are out there and so we always felt that that you know given the, our structure you know it was basically a book there was tons of text on the game oh, um yeah. and it was definitely kind of puzzle driven in terms of of how we would set up certain scenarios where uh it was more like find this special thing that lets you do this other thing uh mm -hmm. that was much more like the Sierra Adventures than, you know, it just boils down to here's the the big baddie that I've got to kill, you know, yeah. um, and so, um, but uh, anyway, John John was the mastermind of 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 most of the mechanics in in that game, um, but um, we had uh, of course we had a lot of other amazing people. We had a, a, a terrific team of programmers. I. I, I just some of the nicest, sweetest guys, but also just some of the most brilliant people I, I worked with. Um, so there was uh, Nels Bruckner, who was the the head programmer. Uh, he uh, helped adapt the uh, basically the wings uh, Aces over the Pacific engine and basically put it on the ground. Uh, oh wow, that came from the Aces engine. I didn't know that, that. that. That's how it started. Is basically he just took the 3D Aces engine and he put it on the ground. Uh, and of course, he he worked with the Aces people as well in in adapting that. But Nels was the one who was in charge of of all of that. Um, and then we had uh, um, uh, Timothy Strelchin and uh, Steve Corden. Uh, Steve had the office and immediately next to mine. I, I love Steve. He was he was Radar O'Reilly um, <laughs> uh, because I would go to Steve and say, "Hey, Steve, I was thinking about this little piece of of, of programming that would do X, Y, or Z or whatever." He said. Oh yeah, I, I finished that a couple of days ago. I'll just uncomment it in the code. <laughs> uh, and um, he just had this uncanny knack of being able to predict what I wanted or what John wanted, and it would just be there and ready whenever we asked for it. Um, oh, that must have been such a stimulating um, way to work. Oh, it was. And the and um, uh, and Timothy Strelchin, uh, uh, he was very much into music and also, you know, as well as being a programmer, he was very interested in the story. So Timothy would come in all the time uh, into my office and we, we spent a lot of time talking about what's going on with the story and what's, you know, he was very curious about what, you know, what's motivating this character and why is this going on? So he, Timothy was very involved with, was just being kind of curious about stuff. Um, uh, and of course we had, um, uh, you read some about it in the blog about our art director. Um, yes. Uh, I, I will. I will simply say is that Mike and I and and uh, 
John did not always see eye to eye. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, uh, that was, if there was any aspect of the game that I did not really enjoy, it was working with Mike. Mm -hmm. um, um, but um, but he had some fan. He had a fantastic team of of art of other artists who were working for him. Um, and uh, uh, we had, of course, I had an assistant programmer that, or a program assistant uh, designer that came in kind of late, named Timothy McClure. Uh, he mm -hmm. was my uh, assistant uh, uh, for a while, and then uh, we we promoted him up from QA. We also brought up uh, somebody who became one of my best friends, uh, Chris Mettinger. Oh, okay. um, and um, uh, so he worked. Uh, he he he. Uh, Chris Mettinger is the one who did a lot of. So if there were a, what you would consider now a level designer, uh -huh. and so he would be the one that was going in and lay. You know, so if there was a trap, he'd be the one that's sitting there. You know, messing around. Go here's you know define draw the trap where it's supposed to be. Here's what's oh, going wow. on. And so he's working with with the code that made the, the traps work. Uh, so that was Chris. Uh, we also have Joseph Munich, uh, who came in very late on the end of Betrayal. He was there with Betrayal, and whenever we started the development of Thief, uh, uh, Joseph was somebody else who was also very interested in sort of the story, and uh, he he did a lot of handling in terms of messing with. We didn't have Lua, you know, there wasn't really sort of a, a right. scripting. Uh, we didn't really have a scripting thing. You were doing scripting in C, uh, but he was doing a lot of integration of text into the game. Uh, so obviously he was very involved with, you know, basically sort of interfa interface between me and the programming is just making sure the text is where it was supposed to be and it was happening when it should be. And, and uh, he also frequently had ideas about where the story should go or what should happen and say, okay, the horse, <laughs> you know, okay, the, the, the barn is already burnt down. There's no point in closing the door right now. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, uh, but, uh, but Joseph was, was a nice guy. He was a good guy. Um, but um, and so looks like we we had a, a great time developing uh, betrayal. And again, uh, anyone who knows me or pays any attention to my my stuff, everybody knows is that betrayal of Crondor. Yes, it's the one game I'm known for above and beyond anything else. Uh, <laughs> and it's probably because I I didn't. It's not the game I spent the longest on, but it is certainly uh, one that I probably poured the most energy to because I pretty much lived at the office. Uh, for the whole time it was there, it uh, was going on. I damn near gave my life for it. By uh, I ended up going to the hospital because I, uh, because uh, I basically been overworking and uh, and uh, so my doctor, you know, made me go back home and told me I couldn't go into the office for a week. Uh, and oh, wow. um, so uh, that was towards the end of everything. Uh, but uh, and of course, I come back and the head of the, the studio comes in and, and says, well, I, I really hope you're doing OK and everything else. And, you know, so, you know, no pressure. And of course, you know, if this game you know, succeeds or fails, it's going to be because of you. And she's like, <laughs> okay, OK, no, hey, no, no freaking pressure. I just came back from from, from this little, you know, unintended holiday. Uh, uh, and <laughs> because of stress, but thank you, um, I guess. Um, but um, anyway, so uh, um, I'm trying to figure out if there's any pr other particular thing about Crondor itself that you might be curious about. I probably is. Um, is there yeah. anything in the game, like Easter egg wise or hidden, that you might have been privy to that like people still haven't found yet? I always love hearing about that. 
I don't know about things that just people have not been found, but one that not many people, uh, but I don't know that, that, that many people know about it, is if you're in the mines of the Mac Mordain Cadal, uh, uh, so you know there's those pits, right? Where you yep. had to find the rope to, to, to swing over the pits? Yeah. Uh, if you jump into the pit and you hold down, I think it's the shift key, or maybe it's, it's, uh, it's some combination of keys. I can't remember now what it is. Uh, it, the, you will see the walls of the pit as you're going by, and you will see our names written oh, on... There's, there's, there's graffiti on the inside of the pit as you're falling. That's awesome. I never knew that. Uh, that that might be in in the hint book that uh, uh, Mr. Yi wrote. Um, um, but uh, uh, but there's I think there are a lot of people who don't necessarily know about that particular Easter egg. Um, there are epitaphs, of course, on headstones everywhere. Uh, yes, most many of those refer to to friends and family and other people. Um, um, let's see. Um, there are other things that, that are, um, so you remember there's a, char a character named uh, Eugene? Yes. And you find her in Caval Keep or whatever? Yep. Um, so, uh, and there's uh, somebody named Corvallis. Well, of course, Eugene is the name of the town that Dynamics is located in. Uh -huh. and, and Corvallis was a nearby town. <laughs> um, um, now, there's another story that it's, this is not something that's inside of, of Betrayal at Crondor. It's a weird-ass coincidence that if you've read Crondor Confidential, you've, uh, you've read about it. But it was a coincidence regarding uh, sort of a triangulation between Feist, the Midkemia universe, and me. Um, so, uh, at, as I said before, is Betrayal at Crondor was developed by Ray and his role-playing buddies. Right. Um, uh, uh, and they, um, uh, used to have a, uh, somebody who would, uh, that was the Baron of Keg. Uh, and his his uh, there's a there's a, a place on the map in the Midkemi universe called Talonke, mm -hmm. um, or or maybe it was Talinki is how they pronounce. But but uh, whatever the case is, is that that was named after uh, an individual who was the Baron of the local chapter of the SCA here in uh, in San Diego. Oh wow! Now. The, the thing about that is, is that years later, after I moved away from Eugene, after I, I did this whole thing and, and where I later ended up in San Diego, which coincidentally is also where, you know, Ray Feist lives, um, I was, uh, uh, whenever I, 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 I got here, I, I would occasionally hear people, they would say, your name's Neil Halford? And I said, yes. And he says, are you related to... Uh, uh, related to the guy who's the head of the SEA here. I said, no. Why, why, uh, why, why, why would you think that? And, and, and so it would just be these kind of random comments I would get. So um, uh, I used to, something that I, I sometimes do, which is I got from my father, is whenever I, I am visiting a new place or whenever I move to a new place, I'll open up the phone book and, and look for anyone who has my last name. Uh, just right. out of curiosity. So 
not too long after I got to San Diego, I discovered that there was somebody in the phone book whose last name was Halford. And so uh, I, I, you know, we kind of were talking on the phone. He says, well, I think you should come down and, and talk to me. And I said, okay, great. So he was working in the tech department at uh, San Diego State University. Mm-hmm. And so I get to his office. And as soon as I walk in the door, there are pictures of all of these gargoyles and, <laughs> uh, and fantasy novels and other things that are on the wall. And here's a picture of him as the baron of the SCA in San Diego. <laughs> so Ray had a character and a place in San Diego named after a distant relative of mine. That is so wild. I do remember reading that. Um, and Dean Halford was uh, was the baron of, of uh, here in San Diego for a number of years. Uh, we... Uh, lost him back in about 2000, 2001, 2002, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was, he had been barren for a really long time. Uh, they loved him dearly here. Uh, you know, we went to his his funeral, and there were just so many people that were here. But of course, Ray uh, Ray remembered Dean. He knew Dean really well, and um, and like I say, uh, he was involved with this role playing group. He knew those people. They knew him. Oh wow. Um, and but it was just this weird ass thing is the fact that this person that was a distant cousin of mine is in his books well before I ever read any of them. That is so wild. That is so wild. <laughs> and I had I mean, no idea no idea that he even existed until I moved to San Diego. That like that that blew my mind when I read it and and then just hearing that again it's like, you know, what are the coincidences of that? That's that's like a lottery win in a way. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and I I was so blessed and lucky to to meet Dean or whatever because, uh, you know, in in my my kind of family, you know, uh, I, I didn't necessarily know a lot of people that were necessarily much like me, and right. there are there's not many people that could could have been much more like me than Dean, oh, and so cool. so whenever so uh, I mean he uh, uh, he was probably in his 60s or so, uh, mid, mid to uh, late 60s, whenever uh, I got to know him out here. And like I say, he, uh, uh, he'd been stuck in a wheelchair since he was like 13 years old. Uh, oh, wow. but, uh, uh, but like I say, it's just, it's really fantastic because uh, it was, I, I'm so blessed that I got a chance to get to know him, but also just this finding out there was this weird cosmic connection between <laughs> us uh, was just surreal. That yeah, that's um, wild. That is that like that's just mind blowing. It's one of those two like I think everybody kind of has that you know fantasy in a way where it's like you meet a, a a family member you didn't know you had that you have like a shit ton in common with. Like at least it's one of mine because like you, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm I'm there. I probably the only one in my family that is like the the geek that I am. And um, well, I, yeah. I, I I've. The, the the one wonderful thing about the geeks having taken over is I I found out, out over the the past several years the fact that I've had closet geeks in my family for years, <laughs> and and it's it's taken sort of 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 all of popular media sort of becoming overcome with with nerdy things for them to finally admit. So I I had all all these Whovians in my family. <laughs> go, I thought I was the only freaking one. You guys always just treat me like I was a weirdo because I was traipsing around in a in a multicolored you know scarf and and all this other stuff whenever I was in junior high um, 
And, you know, back before Doctor Who was cool, <laughs> at least in the United States. Oh, um, man. But, um, um, but, uh, but anyway, that, that, that was kind of a wonderful little thing. And, and like I say, that's, that's an, uh, another thing, a connection to, to Crondor that especially makes me love it simply because just finding out that, that there was this familial connection to this yeah. even before the game ever happened. That, um, that's so wild. Yeah, I mean, just going back a, a little bit uh, into Crondor and the writing. Sure. Um, I remember I was probably I was probably eleven or twelve when when Crondor came out, and I hadn't read the books. I was completely ignorant of the universe, mm-hmm. and became completely lost in this game. Just loved it, and you know, to me, like I I don't remember having played a computer game at that point, maybe the Ultimas, but this was one where I was like, there is, there is so many, like you said, layers. There was so many layers. It was so deep. And then, you know, a month into it, all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, there's books based on this. <laughs> and so then I, I, I remember having the same reaction as you, but at least I was prepared because uh, I had met Pug and Crondor already. And I'm like, wow, that's a, that's a cool uh, name. And mm. then I, I pick up the book and I'm like, oh shit, he's the main character. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. um, but yeah. And then, you know, going on to Easter eggs, like, the the whole point of this is this was this was the game and story that inspired me to write. Like I wanted to write stories that had that kind of depth. That makes and, me happy. Oh, I I can't like it's one of the things like I I remember saying if I could ever meet the person that wrote the story in this game, I always wanted to say thank you. And it was one of those like, um, I remember talking. You know, speaking of Easter eggs, I had gotten the CD version, um, and I remember just poking around on the CD-ROM. And I'm sh- I'm sure people know it now. Maybe they don't, but like buried in the CD is this, you know, very old file format MPEG. I mean, you watch it now, like it's it's the quality is, is rough, but it was like amazing for its time. But there's an interview with Ray Feist. Yes, and um, he's talking about you know his experience playing the game, what he thought of the game, and he goes into his. Uh, his writing style and it always stuck with me where he was like you know you you, i have a unlimited casting budget and an unlimited special effects budget when i write a story and it was just i just remember that really sticking with me and so then there i am reading the books and this was you know the young kid mind i had at the time i'm Mm -hmm. sitting there going when am i going to get to the crondor part when am i going to get to the trailer (laughs) crondor part (laughs) well and then Ray Sorry, eventually go got you there. Um, well, that, I was going to ask: Did you have a part in that at all? In that novelization of that? Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, Am I digging um, into something? I'm sorry. Uh, oh, well, um, of course. So, um, whenever we finished Betrayal at Crondor, um, after we got done, uh, uh, there was supposed to be a sequel. Mm-hmm. And the sequel was, was going to be called The Thief of Dreams. And okay. honest to God, that is probably the best story for a game I ever wrote. Really? Uh, uh, and uh, it, it basically it was because I learned so many lessons and things uh, along the way with Betrayal at Crondor. 
that yeah. I just I, I had something. Whenever we were started working on the on the sequel, uh, I knew exactly where I wanted to go. And of course, the advantage was is that this time around, I was starting with full knowledge of everything, of how right. the universe works, who the characters are, what motivates them, and of course, to me. Uh, Owen is going to become the be-all, end-all magician uh, in the universe simply because we had Puck. Yeah. And, of course, not too much longer. You know, of course, there's also Macros, and there's, you know, we're going to have Macala. There are all yeah. of these super powerful magicians in the universe. And I didn't really want that to be uh, to be Owen's ultimate path. I adored uh, that about that character, by the way. And I loved that. And I... Uh, uh, my my notion was is that he needs to go somewhere uh, unique, and of course, one of the big things that I, I was thinking about is, of course, I made Owen is a noble. He's a family of a noble house. He yeah. had, I know, Poen, uh, 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 Pug was you know a nobody. He was an orphan, um, and so he's going to have very different views about his allegiance to the kingdom. And yeah. everything else, and of course, it's made a big deal of in the in the books is that several times, uh, where Liam and Ar Arutha and all these other folks basically come up to him and say, "Hey, we want you to basically work for the kingdom and protect our interests." Uh, yeah. Pug, Pug, of course, is opposed to this because he sees what happened on Kelawan. He saw yeah. what happened with the, the magicians, and so he fears magician uh, magic in the hands of of of. Uh, temporal power, right? And my notion was is that Owen is going to say, "This is my duty as a member of the of of the kingdom to use whatever I have learned to help protect and defend the kingdom." Yeah, and we, we get a peek of that of of whenever he runs into the crawler and what's going yeah. on with the Nighthawks and all that other stuff. And so that's a really important moment. And even though he does go off with Pug at the end to go to Stardock. That's only a temporary stop on the road for him. Uh, because, oh, okay. Uh, because uh, whenever he goes down to Stardock, ultimately there are all these other people who are sitting at, at Stardock that have that are, are fantastic uh, magicians already. There's Hocha Peppa. There are some of these yeah. other people that are men uh, mentioned. And uh, I just said he's never going to be the best of the best. But at the end of the day, it's it's not all about magic for him. You know, it's uh, and what's more important to him is he wants to be his own person. He wants yeah. to be uh, he wants to be effective. He wants to be accepted by his family. He wants to be accepted by by the kingdom. And so the path that Owen was supposed to take in it's it, it goes even further in the Thief of Dreams and whatever is he ultimately was supposed to become the magical spy master of the kingdom. Oh, I love that fate for him. Um, oh. and, and so Thief of Dream was going to take him further down that, that story. It was going to take place in, uh, partially in the Eastern Kingdom. We were going to meet Lion, but you're also going to meet Owen's family. Uh, there's a big scandal that happens with his fam family in the Eastern Kingdom, and he ends up on a mission that takes him down into Greater Kesh. Oh um, my god. Um, and we would have basically a follow-up with the Crawler and all that other stuff. Right? So... Uh, that's where it was supposed to go, and God, this I would have loved to have seen that. And, and this was this was the story. So we'd start it with Thief of Dreams, and of course there would have been a sequel after that when he finally sort of reaches. The, you know, we would have a proper trilogy, right? Um, and so um, anyway, so we wrote the story for Thief of Dreams. There was a whole bunch of politics, which uh, unfortunately ultimately killed the Thief of Dreams. 
Um, and uh, of course, I took it to Ray. He and I uh, met and uh, at uh, Worldcon, sat down, and Ray Ray told me point blank. He says, "Neil, if you don't do this, if if this doesn't end up becoming a game at some point, then I'm going to do it as a book." Oh wow! So uh, anyway, um, the cancellation happens. Uh, then there's the whole uh, thing that happens with Return to Crondor, which is a whole other little story. I'm, I'm actually going to be writing. I've kind of put off writing it for a while, uh, and it's only going to be a couple of uh, a couple of entries probably. But I am going to tell the story basically of my involvement with Return to Crondor, which was only for about six months. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but um, uh, but that happened in let's see, it's ninety four to ninety five, I think. It's, I think it's like so. December, December of 94 to early part of 95. Um, and then I, I departed that, and then, then it doesn't get published until 98. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, that I didn't think. come out for a while, and that was towards it's, the end of... Uh... No, it, was, it, was, it was a case of, it was at one company, that company folded, the rights got yep. moved to somebody else, uh, they worked on it, they were near collapse, they finally got bought, bought back by Sierra Online, and it came back in-house. But other than... Uh, you know, Ray was involved with it, uh, and uh, but I wasn't involved. You know, uh, other than the initial stages of it, I wasn't involved with it. John wasn't involved with it. It went through a, hand, a handful mm. of different people, totally different approach. Uh, they didn't really have any honor for what we had done in betrayal. Yeah, it wasn't my favorite and, game. I'll just and say that. and so, <laughs> so anyway, we'll move past that uh, to what happens when the book is coming out. So. Okay. I used to, to read, you know, I, I read Locus Magazine, which is sort of the, uh, it, it's sort of the newsletter for science fiction and fantasy writers. Mm -hmm. uh, and so yeah. if you want to find out what's going on, and so they usually have the, uh, you know, here's the books that are coming out, here's interviews and stuff, and then they usually have a area where they say, here are books that have just been sold or bought or what have you. So I'm going through blah, 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 blah. Oh, and uh, we, uh, so Raymond E. Feist was just paid six figures for Crondor the Betrayal, <laughs> uh, and which will be a, the, a book, you know, a new trilogy of books that are set or whatever. Um, Ray never contacted me. Oh, wow. He didn't tell me, you know, and so, and so like I say, it's, at the end of the day, it's his universe. You sure, know, sure. whenever we license it, and of course, the, the, the hard thing about whenever you create a game for somebody else, for a licensee, at the end of the day, whatever you create belongs to the licensee. Yeah, it's, it's their part. stuff. Yeah, it belongs to their stuff. It's like you could write the greatest Star Trek novel in the history of whatever, but whenever you are done with that, is whatever characters and situations you've written belongs to Star Trek. Yep. Um, and so you can't do anything with that stuff, and you don't have any say in it, and you don't necessarily, you know, you might get royalties from that book, but if it gets reused in something else. You yeah, get, you have no you say. You get nothing from that. So, uh, so the notice comes out about Cronor the Betrayal uh, coming out, and uh, I'm hurt. Yeah, uh, yeah because because at least a hi, I'm planning to do this before I write it and sell it would have been nice. Yeah, yeah um, even just a, a, a heads up. And yeah, I, you know, I totally get it. And particularly since he's using characters, I mean, main characters that I created. Um, and the one thing that at least Ray does is he does put a thank you to myself and to John Cutter at the beginning of the book. 
Okay. Uh, and so we're in the thank you and the acknowledgements. And he writes a thing basically saying, I can't, you know, Neil and John wrote this story at the beginning. Okay. So, so, so that was a little bit of solve to the situation. But at the time when it happened, I was not happy. Sure. Uh, and I was particularly not happy when in the, the later books also continued to have characters from Betrayal at Crondor in them. Uh, that I had created that basically had been minor characters in the game that showed up in his later books. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, for quite a while, uh, that was a, uh, a, I didn't want to talk to Ray. <laughs> And uh, I wasn't super happy happy with the situation. I mean, it, it, over the passage of time, I'm I'm a lot less upset about it. I understand this is sort of the situation whenever you know you uh, whenever you do work for hire. But yeah. I, one one of the things that kind of sticks in my craws over the year is is Ray has had other people write in his universe as books or short stories. I was never offered I was never offered that opportunity. Oh, that's a bummer because you. I'm telling you, like that was one of the best stories in that universe. And I'm not just saying that because yeah. you're here. I, I um, you know, uh, but what it you is. know, it was just like you know, okay, you know, I I get that that whatever. But it, it would have been nice whenever you did like honored enemy. Uh, I think was was something. Yeah. Uh, uh, that if if he'd given me a shot to at least come in and write a short story or whatever, but you know, uh, so like I said, it, it was just it's been a sore point for me for a long time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I understand the why it is the way that it is. Uh, but all of this said, um, let's just say that the work that I did on on uh, uh, the Thief of Dreams was not for naught. Because Whoa, you have my attention. <laughs> um, and so a lot of the ideas and elements and things that are in Crondor is that. If you if I decided to write a novel about a spy master and set it in a fantasy universe or what have you, I can change the name, scratch off the serial numbers, and nobody can say boo to me about it. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's not midkemia, if it's not whatever. Um, so I am currently working on a novel <laughs> uh, uh, that will probably be the launch of a trilogy. I'm hoping. Um, and so let's say there are elements of what would have been in, in that story. Now it's now the thing about it is, is some people say, well, it's, it's so far from the, the original material. I don't know that it matters, but it certainly grew out of the thief of dreams uh, thing. And it will be called the thief of dreams. Um, yes. uh, um, so, um, so anyway, so there is more storytelling coming from me. Uh, it's, you're going to probably have a long wait to uh, wait, uh, wait for it simply because, uh, I have been world building on this for years. Oh my uh, God. I'm so and, excited. Um, and, uh, there will be a novel and maybe a trilogy. And, uh, if I get people excited about it, I, I would really love it if I could ultimately turn this into a computer game. Um, oh. and so, uh, but if, if, I, if I license it, I'm going to be the lead designer on it. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, anyhow, uh, not to get people. So like I said, that's going to be a long way down the road. At least it's not going to be sure. happening this year, but I am currently writing that novel. Um, so, um, uh, if if you like the things that I have done as a storyteller, maybe this and, and so this will be the thing that comes closest to what I did with Crondor because I've I've you know uh, I know there's other stuff that you've seen that I've done so I've worked on short films I have my audio drama series that I'm doing right now uh, those have different 
kind of directions. My short films are sort of horror films. My my uh, uh, Uncharted region stuff are sort of the Twilight Zone and and that kind of stuff. It's so uh, good. But but the um, oh, you like the the Uncharted regions? I loved it. Uh, I was I'm a, I'm a big Twilight Zone fan. Uh huh. And that was that was like coming back home. It was great. So and... uh, the episode that I shared uh, I shared with you was one of the stories that didn't get produced from the original series. You you mentioned that, yeah, yes. in the beginning. Well, I recognized the title. Yeah, it's Haven. Yeah. yeah, and so and that stars John Billingsley uh, from oh. Star Trek Enterprise. He plays Doctor Flox uh, or whatever. Uh, the rest of the cast are, are uh, uh, local actors that are here in in San Diego. Um, one of the the other actors in it was recently in Mank, which made a big splash here recently. Yeah. Uh, he so so the guy who plays uh, uh, Thorpe in that that one is is he was in uh, uh, in in Mank. He also is in a movie that's coming out that's also supposed to be Oscar bait. Uh, that's about Billie Holiday. Ooh. Um, and so, um, but um, but yeah. So so I've got several things sort of in the pipeline. But but if Crondor is your thing, if uh-huh. if sort of, of of fantasy is your thing, uh, I think Thiefel Dreams would be the thing that that you uh, will. It will be a very different kind of take. It's not elves and dwarves and that sort of thing. Um, but um, um, it is definitely fantasy. Uh, and magic is definitely involved. Spycraft is definitely involved. Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, oh. <laughs> um, and uh, um, it probably resembles uh, sort of uh, a mix between revolutionary Russia and the Renaissance. So, uh, oh my god. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, so that is that's the thing I'm going to tease all of you guys with. <laughs> I cannot wait, and just 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 make us one promise, Neil. Okay, okay. promises are dangerous. What what, what promises <laughs> am I making for you here? Don't pull the winds of winter on us. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I will probably write the the uh, probably write the first book as if it is a standalone book. Okay, uh, and it's one of those things that if. Peepies in three, uh, Alana, a uh, really great selling fantasy author. And she's the first time I've had a big sort of fantasy author reach out to me and tell me, you know, that Crondor was influential. That's on so them. cool. Um, and she, I think she was just a little bit older than you whenever Crondor came out. And of course, I, uh, her, like many other people, is, you know, uh, I broke her heart by killing her. No, I'm telling uh, you. Sorry. Uh. Spoiler. <laughs> oh, it's well beyond <laughs> spoiler limit. <laughs> Yeah, what? Oh, so, um, that was so great, though. It was such a uh, great ending. Um, but uh, I, it's it's been kind of fun because I've this is someone that that uh, was sort of inspired by Crondor, and she's now sort of become a mentor for me. That's so uh, cool because uh, I, you know, uh, making sort of the jump from from doing shorter format or sort of interactive format into doing you know pro stuff. I mean it. I actually took several semesters of novel writing in college, mm-hmm. but uh, after doing what I've done for all of these years, it kind of messed up my ability to write prose. You know, because most so yeah. much what I, I do is is dialogue, and now I have to remember, oh, how do I write tell a story with more than just dialogue? 
And yeah. so, so, you know, I'm, I'm reading several authors that are sort of my influences that kind of get my, my sea legs back. And so, uh, Ilana's books are certainly one of them that, that I would, uh, uh, that I'm reading, but, uh, Tad Williams is mm -hmm. probably, you know, my, uh, he, Tad Williams and Guy Gavriel K. Those are my two authors that are on my. If I need to get my head back to where I was when I was writing Crondor, I go to them uh, because Tad Tad Williams Dragonbone Chair. It was sitting yeah. right next to my desk whenever I was writing Betrayal of Crondor. Uh, oh, that's uh, wild. Uh, I mean, I, I did my best to lift elements of of Ray's style and his storytelling, but again, a lot of my my prose reads more like Tad, and there's a reason. That's, right. that's the reason why it sounds that way. Is because I was I was borrowing more from from Tad's style. That's wild. Um, uh, damn. Uh, I I do want to push uh, another thing for you that uh, I watched today and and really loved. Uh, Neil also shared a short film of his uh, called "The Case of Evil" uh, that you and and your your wife, my wife, uh, my wife Jana, yes, Jana, yep, uh, directed. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, Go ahead, please. No, please. So, so yeah. So, um, um, my in addition to the many other things that that I do is my um, my uh, wife and I are both uh, independent filmmakers. Uh, we became involved with uh, the independent film community here uh, back whenever it the prices were coming down in terms of film equipment and uh, the kind of tools you could work on whenever you could basically edit the computer on your home computer. Uh, you could get a, a really decent camera. You could make it look like something that was shot in Hollywood or if not Hollywood, at least, you know, off Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so I, I started going to the San Diego filmmakers meeting, which is a, a semi-professional organization that's made up of, both uh, amateurs, you know, people who are student filmmakers and other folks, but also people who work in Hollywood. And of course, they live in San Diego, though. Um, and so, uh, so we have this kind of interesting mix of, of folks. And so I started going with that with a good buddy of mine named Jimmy Diggs. Um, Jimmy is best known to uh, a, a lot of people because he was a freelance uh, uh, screenwriter who worked on both uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager. Oh, wow. Uh, and so Jimmy and I uh, became buds after kind of appearing on panels together at conventions here in Southern California. And um, uh, so then we later sort of became uh, writing and pitching partners. And so we, you know, we pitched Star Trek Enterprise together. Um, and which that was an amazing experience, particularly if you grew up as a Trekkie, because it's like, oh, I'm, yeah. sitting, I'm sitting on a couch talking to the, the showrunner for Star Trek Enterprise, and they're li listening to what I have to say. Um, <laughs> um, so as opposed to being on the internet and typing things and hoping they will see what I say. Um, <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so we started attending uh, the uh, filmmakers meetings. And so we, I really got interested in the idea of trying to make films you know, our, uh, on our own. And so I uh, went out and bought a crap load of, of equipment and we started shooting things that were like uh, uh, my wife has a uh, periodically worked for the American cancer Society basis and helping them with their uh, making strides against breast cancer walk. Uh, my wife is also a breast cancer survivor uh, mm -hmm. many, many years. And um, so uh from all of this, we, we were making commercials. We did uh, kind of some web series stuff that helped promote uh, different kinds of events. Uh, 
And out of that, we decided we were going to start making some narrative stuff. And so uh, after an abortive attempt to try to make a feature film, which exploded in our faces, um, uh, because in natural, I decided the first big thing I'm going to do is do a feature film. Okay, yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, um, so we backed up from that, and we said, let's do a short. And something that had always been kind of sitting in the back of my mind was I love the old universal horror films from back oh, in the yeah. 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, and so uh, Dracula and Frankenstein and Wolfman, Wolfman and, and all of those uh, have uh, been important films for me my whole life. And whenever I'm sick or I just have spare time, there are like a handful of things that I will go to to just put on simply just because it's comfort watching to me. And sure. so, so those things are going to be either episodes of both Star Trek, uh, uh, episodes of classic Doctor Who, and the other thing are universal horror films. Um, <laughs> and uh, ironically enough is that that whenever I'm really sick and if I'm laying on the couch, what I'll do is I'll put on an old universal horror film, and for whatever reason, that just relaxes me and puts me right yep. to sleep. I'm just relaxed. I'm just, I feel like I'm comfortable. I'm in my space, right? Yep. So anyway, um, I've been obsessed for a number of years with making a, a, a universal horror film myself. And we, my wife and I had actually pitched an idea for a web series a number of years back that was uh, not necessarily in that vein, but it was about sort of uh, the blues and horror. Uh, and uh, this was called Scratch. And we were, we were, I would say this out. reminds me of the old Scratch story, what I watched. Uh, yeah. And so, so this is, uh, this is, uh, this was kind of an outgrowth of, out, out of that. So we, we decided we were, we, we had this big ambitious plan for this series called Scratch, which was going to be a web series. Um, but in the long term, it was just too expensive and too elaborate for us to kind of nail down. So yeah. I got a challenge whenever one time, whenever uh, we uh, attend our, our several local film festivals, we're actually sponsors of the International Mobile Film Festival. Uh, so if you shoot films on mobile phones uh, and you have uh, you'd like to get into a festival, go check out the International Mo Mobile Film Festival. I uh, oh, what a neat idea. Uh, uh, there's a but a, there's a friend of mine who that's her festival, but my wife and I uh, sponsor it through our production company, which is Swords of Circuitry Studios. Um, but there's another horror film festival here in town called uh, uh, Horrible Imaginings, and Horrible Imaginings uh, director uh, Miguel and I uh, had become friends over the years, and so one time I was actually up there. Uh, promoting a something that my friend Jimmy had shot, uh, and I was supposed to be introducing him. But while I'm getting ready to introduce them, uh, Miguel, uh, who's the director of the film festival, yells at me, "Neil, you owe me a film." Because <laughs> uh, because <laughs> I've been talking to him about shooting something, and I said, "Okay, I won't. I obviously can't do it for you right now, but I will give you a film." And so the next year came around, we didn't have anything ready in time. So the year after that. Um, uh, about a month before, about before the deadline for us to turn in something for the film festival, I, I just had this idea. I said, I'm going to take this idea that we had for this other series, but I'm going to do, I'm going to take it back in time. I'm going to set it in the, the forties and I want to shoot it black and white. And we want to do this noir horror film, uh, as if it was, uh, a, a you know, shot back in that time period. And, uh, shoot it as though it was a race film because uh, there were race records and race films. And so these were films that were shot uh, primarily for African-American audiences. 
yeah. uh, not would not have been seen by by larger audiences. So imagine there had been a unit of Universal that was shooting. Uh, horror race films. <laughs> oh wow! Um, uh, back in this time period, and so that was sort of the overall thing that we started off with. And so we was going to have an African American, you know, lead. We were going to tell a story, and of course, if we're going to talk about the blues and we're going to talk about the horror, we're gonna, uh, then it needs to have you know an African American lead. And um, and so that's sort of the seed out of out of which this particular story grew. Um, and so uh, we. Uh, it was kind of a crazy shoot because at the same time that we were shooting this, I was also shooting a um, a documentary with a friend of mine, uh, Larry Nemechek. He's known as Dr. Trek. He's one of the biggest experts on Star Trek. Uh, he and his wife actually wrote one of the episodes for Star Trek Voyager, but I've known him since we growing up in, in Oklahoma City or whenever we were went to the same science fiction club in Oklahoma City. Um, so we were, I, I was, we were planning to do this, but I was also having to make trips to Houston uh, periodically to shoot our documentary, and so that was going on at the same time. Um, uh, this was going on, but so we had the script together. I I, I wrote it for a buddy of mine, uh, Merrick MacArthur, who now is kind of blown up. He's on all all kinds of stuff. He's on Scandal. He was on uh, 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 recently uh, Saved by the Bell. He's been on some other stuff. Oh, wow. uh, um, but, uh, he's, his career has, has definitely been going some places, but I wrote it knowing, you know, that, that uh, I'd write it for him cause I knew he would be perfect for the part. Uh, I had some friends of mine who had this old house that was down in, uh, an older part of San Diego. It's this really, uh, oh, cool. atmospheric, creepy kind of house. And so I just called them up and said, Hey, I'd like to make this film. I'm looking for something that's kind of creepy and atmospheric. And the response was, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but uh, uh, Crystal and, and her hubby uh, are just really some of the dearest, sweetest people. Um, and they said, sure, if, if you want to come in and film this, uh, we'll hand you the keys to the house and let you do whatever you want to with it. Oh, that's awesome. uh, and so, uh, so I cast uh, our, our our lead actor Merrick. Uh, then there was uh, a, a lady by the name of Rebecca Saucedo, who she was best friends with the makeup artist. Because I was mm -hmm. looking, there's a second part where I, I need a, a kind of. Uh, I was looking for a sort of voodoo uh, kind of priestess to play a part, and originally I was looking for an African American uh, lady to play the part. Uh, but, uh, she said, well, how about someone who is, uh, is, uh, um, Mexican or, or Spanish and uh, from coming from sort of a Santeria kind of thing? I said, well, that could possibly work. So, so, yeah. you know, so she came in to, we were just going to have a sit down, uh, meeting, kind of talk and meet her and see what she would be like. And she sits down at the table and she, without prompting, begins to do the little speech that's given in the Wolfman. Oh wow! Um, uh, she knows it from memory. She knows it cold because it was her favorite film when she was a little girl. Um, oh my God, that's and so cool. So I just look at her, and said, "Okay, you, you know, you're hired. <laughs> she, she, you're hired because I mean, she, she was channeling Maria Open Skya um, from The Wolfman perfectly." And I said, oh, that's "Okay." So cool. And so, so like I said, totally changed my uh, notion of what that character was going to be like. And. Uh, so then we, it was kind of insane. We, because uh, uh, I had sent the, the script to Miguel and I said, does this look interesting to you? He says, yeah, that's great. When, uh, when can you send me the, 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 
the movie. And I said, I don't have it done yet. And he says, well, the, the deadline's in like, you know, a week or two. And I said, <laughs> I said we'll have it done for you. And so, uh, so I, I, we started, uh, we did a, a three-day shoot uh, that was just really intense. And there was all kinds of crazy stuff that happened, you know, good stuff and bad stuff uh, that happened during the shoot. Uh, and then I had to go to, to Houston and I had to come back to, to, uh, to actually start cutting it and do the special effects and the music. Um, my, wow. one of, a good friend of mine that I had known since high school, uh, who, uh, I, I also was the only time I've performed, uh, with synthesizers and everything on stage was with my buddy for his senior recital, uh, at college at OU. <laughs> Uh, around the time that I'm doing Uncharted Regions, the first time around. Um, and so I contacted him and I said, I need someone to do the soundtrack for this. I need someone. Do you have a theremin? Because I said, we're going to do a, a movie set oh, in wow. uh, a universal horror movie, and we need a theremin. And I, I and so do you know someone uh, who could do that? And he says, uh, I have a theremin, and I can do that <laughs> for you. But he said, I don't want to just do the theremin. theremin. Can I do the score? And I, I said, because my original plan was is that if you listen to those old, early, early horror films, most of them were just taking classical music tracks yeah. and re-recording them uh, uh, for as their soundtracks. They weren't creating original mm -hmm. soundtracks. And so my plan was originally to take um, music that was lifted from um, uh, the planet suite. There's Neptune and Venus, yeah. which both have this kind of ethereal kind of qualities to them that was perfect. I just wanted him to write some special segments with the theremin for certain moments where in the in it where it's you need the theremin there. Um, yeah. And so I threw this at him, and he says, "Okay, great. Well, keep in mind, my buddy is living in New Zealand." Oh shit. Uh, <laughs> um. Uh, and so a bit of a time difference. Bit of a time difference. Says I need. Uh, so he needs a string section. I said, well, um, my cousins play strings because they played at my wife and I's uh, uh, wedding, and they're both instructors for string. Uh, maybe they could be the string section. So my cousin, uh, my cousins, and their kids were the string section in. Arkansas. Uh, there is a trumpeter, there are a trombone player who is in China. Um, um, and so he writes out the score, he sends out the parts to all of them. They're recording all of their different parts in all these different places at the same time. And then they send him the recordings from their end of things. He's mixing all those things together, all of this to go into our film before we turn it into the film festival. Oh man! So this is three weeks. Holy shit! <laughs> um, and so all of this craziness uh, happens. So we go in, uh, and, and we—I don't have a final cut of the film, but I sent it to Miguel. Miguel goes, "Holy shit! This is amazing!" Yes, you're going into the festival. Um, um, <laughs> and so we had our debate, our debut at the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. Uh, and, uh, then after that, uh, we went to the San Diego Fall Film Festival. We won three awards there. Uh, we were aud audience choice as well as judges choice for, for best horror sci-fi film. Oh, that's awesome. Um, we got played at, um, uh, okay. Or, uh, at, at Origin. Um, yeah. it got played at Dragon Con. Um, oh, awesome. and so we, but we ultimately ended up in 39 film festivals scattered across the United States, Canada, and, uh, uh, the UK. Um, and 
uh, looks so we ended up doing I think we ultimately won like five or six awards uh, different awards for it um, but um, for something that got thrown together as fast as it did and in such a chaotic sort of way that it did I'm still uh, really pleased with how well it did and how uh, people respond to it um, I, I think definitely people who love older films get it some yeah. people who are not used to older films not as much so uh you know i think i think people they, they kind of like it it's okay or whatever but it's it they're not used to the pacing of yeah. a film because the thing for us is like we could there i've seen people say i'm going to make a, a a film and they they you know desaturate it there's no color and it's okay i'm now i'm done i said no no, it said so the, the makeup that we did for the film, uh, uh, I insisted on using the same techniques they would have used back in 1940. And, and it so looks the, great. And uh, thank you. And um, uh, it like I say, it was just it was definitely a labor of love. Um, and, uh, you know, my wife and I are both really proud of, of that particular film. And, and the thing that I, I uh, oh, one of the cool things that's, that was nice about it, too, is that um, Miguel, in addition to running the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival, uh, periodically has had monthly uh, series where he'll come in and they'll show old films, you know, so uh -huh. we'll, show, we'll show Casablanca or we'll show whatever. And so they said, we're going to show um, The Return of the Invisible Man and uh, uh, um, wasn't, uh, oh, and it was uh, one of the, the, the Frankenstein movies, or it was the the not Abbott and Costello, but uh, somebody meets meets Frankenstein. I can't remember, okay. uh, uh, but it's it's one of the class uh, classic you know uh, uh, films from that time period. And they said we would like to run the case of evil as the opener for this series. Oh, that's awesome! And so it was really kind of cool to go in and sit down, and we're in a regular theater, and here's our little short running in front of these other two classic you know black and white horror films. That's so cool. Um, that was there. And so that was really exciting. I was super jazzed about it. I said, okay, that for me is real validation. And, uh, uh, and the, 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 lady, the lady who helps him with that series is she actually works for NPR. She's one of their film critic people. And so she really loves the, the, the movie. Um, but it, it, for that is, is that was really kind of... I love these old movies. I just want to do, you know, have something that's sort of my own love letter to this. But um, a, a a really another wonderful moment. Sorry, I'm I'm blathering on about this. No, but, you're um, fine. Um, so at one point we had submitted this to a um, a, a symposium, uh, which was for uh, African American people to come in and talk about uh, uh, representations of of uh, uh, an Afrofuturism thing, which is covers a, quite a bit of stuff, but their main thrust for this particular one was horror. And so, comic book writers. So we had John Jennings, and we had um, uh, Bree Newsom, and some other really kind of big name folks that were there for this. Mm -hmm. uh, but my notion was is that we'll have that there, and then have Merritt go up and talk about acting in this particular piece. So it was all arranged. Uh, it was up at at Loyola Marymount. So my wife was driving up to Los Angeles for this thing. And we get a phone call from Merrick on the way up. And he says, dude, I just got a phone call from my agent. I've got an I've got a, a audition that I need to go to. 
And I said, well, you know, my rule is always that you go to our audition, you get paid first, right? And so, yeah. so we'll go up there. And so uh, we, we get in the door and uh, I walk in. And of course, my wife and I are out of the entire audience of people there. There are probably three white people in the audience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there are just the three of us. And I'm just going, oh, God. Uh, uh, because they're going to be looking at us. What are these white folks up here talking to us about black people in film? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I said, oh, this is going to go over like a lead balloon. Uh, because like I said, the intent was this Merrick was going to go up and talk about it. And yeah. um, so, but he wasn't there. And so we just kind of had to apologize. And so they, they went ahead and showed the film. But before they asked us to come up, uh, the guy who was in charge of the symposium stopped and he says, I wish this had been what was on television when, when the old movies were running. And so with, instead of our, this, is, this feels like this was our Dracula or our Frankenstein. Oh or my God. And so this is the, the person in charge of the symposium. And That's we got a, awesome. And we got a standing ovation from the people in the audience. And that for me, I just said, okay, we did our job because this is what we intended, you know? That's awesome. Um, and so, uh, so uh, I, I, I really kind of that I had a big kind of sigh of relief there because you know, whenever you are are, are messing with somebody else's culture or, or everything else, you want to be careful. You don't want to sure. Uh, you don't want to be offensive. And so, in the same way that that we're treating Ray, I was trying to treat Ray's universe with some respect and say this is you know uh, what their fans want. The same thing for I, I want them to see that this is a film that 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 you know. This was not the the scaredy the the classic old film scaredy cat black guy who's running away because you know he's you know uh, scared of ghosts or yeah, you know yeah. the, the kind of stuff that you would have seen back then. I said I wanted something very different than that, um, and um, and the the advantage is too is Merrick whenever he's on screen he he feels like a classic movie star. He really does. He really does. Um, and so, so he just has this, he's handsome and he has this, this, uh, really just amazing kind of class and screen presence and perfect, uh, for, for, for the film. And, um, um, and there, there's one particular moment in it that, that I I won't spoil, but there's one particular moment when there's a confrontation between, uh, but he and, and the witch, uh, towards the end uh, that I'm particularly proud of. It feels like one of the best moments out of like a Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, uh, I, I, I truly, truly love that one. So anyway. I, I really appreciate you sending that to us. And I, I just checked. It's uh, if you have Amazon Prime, you can yes. go watch it. You can go watch it right now. It's, it's called The Case of Evil. It's mm-hmm. a it's a short film. I think it was a like eleven minute runtime. Yep. Um, and it was it was awesome. Like I I sat on my lunch break today and, and just watched it. I'm like, I they don't make movies like this anymore. Like I loved stuff like that. And it you know just hearing the story behind it just makes it you know that much more special. And you can definitely see the the love that went into it. And it's just it was really great. I I wanted to say thank you for for sharing that. Uh, we enjoyed it. Um. And, well, and sorry, go glad ahead. to do it. And I, 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 I like people to know the stuff simply because people tend, I tend to have people now that have me kind of segmented in different areas. There are the people who know me because of games, yep. and I now have people who know me because of the case of evil and sort of our film work, uh, and our documentaries and, and our film work. And then you know, uh, and now starting to have some people that are starting to associate it with sort of the 
the uh, audio dramas and say mm-hmm. that at the end of the day, I'm a storyteller. I don't really care about, you know, uh, about a platform aside from the fact is what is the right story to tell on the right platform? And, um, yeah. And I think that's what makes a lot of your work special. Like, like I said, is I did more of a deep dive and, and we saw just all the stuff you're involved in. It's like, it's like the, this is somebody who loves to tell a story and um, it, 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 it was awesome. And I, I have to say um, we've done quite a few interviews now and this has to be, you know, one of my favorites. And I just, this was so much fun, Neil. I cannot thank you enough for sitting with us for almost, my gosh, I couldn't even believe it when I looked at the clock, almost three hours. We're <laughs> history building. Like this like was said, so great. So I told you, you know, nickel and you get, you know, 20 bucks. So no, but uh, I can't thank you enough for the time and just the richness of the history of your story and the stuff you've created has been a real pleasure to, to sit and listen to. And, I, you know, as you continue your projects, your writing, especially Thief of Dreams, uh, we would love to have you back on to, to talk about it and, and obviously promote it. But just, you know, just get another chance to sit and chat. This was this was awesome. Well, it was it was my my privilege and honor to be with you guys. And like I, like I said to you guys before we got started, is that I'm just I'm just happy that anybody still cares. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh but uh, uh anyway i i want to also thank you thank all of the people who basically have been following me like all of these years have been following the things we worked on uh betrayal at condor again you know i'm uh i'm very proud to have been associated with it i'm honored that so many people uh, write to me and send me notes and and uh just tell me how much uh, the game influenced them i really loved your comment saying that it was one of the reasons you decided to become writing that to me is like the best possible thing uh because <laughs> if, if i inspire other people to go out and create and tell stories and share everything then i feel like then it made whatever i've done worthwhile um because that that meant you know the energy went out there and, and it's, it's become something new and it, and uh, other people will continue doing stuff because of of, of some silly thing that i did uh when i was uh, in early 20s uh, uh, so that means something to me, uh, and so uh, uh, and I, I hope that you continue to, to write and produce your own stuff, and and people can uh, be talking to you, you know, thirty years from now and saying. <laughs> um, but uh, um, I, I hope so. I'll do it as long as uh, as long as the the clock continues to tick, as they say. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank thank you again so much, and obviously for you know one of the most classic games of, of our childhood, and, um, and and again, just thank you for your time today. This was this was such a treat. Yeah, well, I had fun. We can't wait to hear about Thief of Dreams. <laughs> yeah, look forward to that. N- neither can I. <laughs> <laughs>